0: It's actually never happened in world history that a group of sanctioned so-called terrorists take over a country. The first thing that happened was that when the Taliban took over, their credentials weren't recognized by well by anybody as as being the sort of representatives of Afghanistan. And so uh, immediately uh, they couldn't um, draw upon Afghanistan's assets, uh, the the central banking assets that were held overseas, mostly in the United States, but also in Europe and the Middle East. All of those bank accounts were suddenly unavailable uh, to the new bosses of Kabul. Um, so essentially, For all intents and purposes, the central bank was robbed of its assets. And trade uh, became very, very difficult. And it still is. Two years ago,
1: Afghanistan as the world had known it for a generation collapsed. The country's republic, set up in 2002 by the U.S. and its mostly Western allies, lost its 19-year-long war against a group of militants called the Taliban. The U.S., NATO, and a coalition of other countries backing the Republican government withdrew their troops in a matter of days, and the Taliban marched into the Afghan capital pretty much unopposed. And while the country has been recast in the Taliban's image as a theocratic autocracy they call the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, its economy, the lives and livelihoods of its 40 million people, is crippled. And no one really knows when
2: or if it will recover. The business people that I talk to tend to feel that uh, the economy isn't going anywhere. I, I wouldn't say that it's been continuing to decline. And uh, I, I don't think that there's much optimism that things are going to change, at least in the near term.
1: You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. And today, two years on from the Taliban's takeover of Kabul, we're looking at how Afghanistan came to be isolated from the rest of the world and its economy nearly paralyzed by sanctions. Well,
0: not exactly. So, Afghanistan itself is not under sanctions. My name is Graham Smith. I'm a senior analyst for the International Crisis Group. And I've been working on Afghanistan for the most part um, for a couple of decades now as a journalist, as a political analyst, briefly as a United Nations official. Uh, you know, I've done a few different things in Afghanistan.
1: As Graham mentioned, Afghanistan, even Taliban run Afghanistan, is not actually under sanctions at all. But wait. Why do so many people seem to think it is?
2: The freeze on assets and international sanctions have crippled the Afghan economy. The U.S. left Afghanistan in August, but launched a new economic attack on the Afghan people. It is the result of the sanction imposed on Afghanistan.
0: So Afghanistan itself is not under sanctions. There are sanctions against members of the Taliban. Uh, and against the uh, Haqqanis as a group, um, that's uh, you know, part of the—some members of the Taliban are actually listed as uh, a terrorist group. These sanctions date back to the 1990s, um, and they have been uh, maintained by uh, the United States and the United Nations and, and other sanctioning entities, the European Union, uh, individual UN member states and it resulted in some of the sanctions that applied to the Taliban sort of de facto being applied to Afghanistan.
1: American and UN sanctions against the Taliban started in the 1990s, as Graham said, back when the group already controlled Afghanistan in the aftermath of the country's civil war. The Taliban government of that era was a pariah on the world stage. It was notorious for its treatment of women, banning them from the education system, most jobs, and most areas of public life and for persecuting minorities. It also used Afghan territory to shelter the international terrorist group Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, of course, is the group behind 9-11, the largest terrorist attack in American history, an event that spurred global powers to expand their sanctions against the Taliban further. Any financial assets the group's members had in non-Afghan banks were frozen. They were banned from travel, and most importantly, no one could legally engage in any financial transactions with them. After 9-11, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, ousted the Taliban from power, and set up a republic, which marked the beginning of a new war that went on for almost 20 years before the Taliban finally won. But the sanctions were never lifted, and the Taliban itself remains designated by the U.S. as a terrorist organization. And as you heard Graham say earlier, when the Taliban took power in August 2021, it was the first time in history that a sanctioned terrorist group had managed to take over an entire country. A sanctioned Taliban governed Afghanistan in the 90s, but back then, Afghanistan was a backwater in the global economy. The country had no internet and barely even any telephone lines. But 2021 Afghanistan, while poor, was a fully functioning modern state. And when it fell under Taliban control, suddenly no one wanted
0: anything to do with it. Back to Graham. I mean, this was a country that um, relied on grants for 75% of its government budget. You know, they received a huge amount of uh, on-budget development assistance. And overnight, that switched off because uh, international financial institutions usually work, uh, you know, with countries, uh, not with, you know, rogue groups that have taken over a country. And so uh, it was very hard. Um, to get the World Bank and other IFIs uh, back in the game, back involved in Afghanistan. The effect of Afghanistan's sudden slide back into global
1: pariah status was brutal. Back when the country was a republic, it took about 10 years for the size of the economy to grow by $5 billion. After the republic fell, the economy lost that amount in just 10 months. 700,000 jobs were lost and GDP per capita fell by nearly a third. It was one of the worst economic meltdowns in human history. The scale of the economic contraction was equivalent to the one that happened in Syria over five years of civil war. But in Afghanistan, it wasn't the start of a war that brought this on, it was the end of one. And it just kept getting worse. In 2022, Afghanistan started running out of banknotes. According to one estimate by the UN, fewer than 100 U.S. dollars of cash per person was left in the economy. A lot of notes had left the country, exchanged for foreign currency which was then used to pay for ways to leave. No new banknotes were being produced because of fears from currency manufacturers based in Europe over whether they could do business with a Taliban-run central bank. And they weren't the only ones. Afghan banks found that when they tried to process international transactions with partner banks overseas, the money would bounce back, Afghan businesses had their orders from overseas suppliers refused. Foreign NGOs operating in Afghanistan were told by their legal teams to stop their activities. Whenever they tried to find out what was going on, they always got the same answer. Sanctions. Although the sanctions were targeted against individual Taliban members, not Afghanistan as a whole, those Taliban members now controlled the central bank, the tax office, the border posts, and just about every other official institution that anyone getting involved in Afghanistan might come into contact with. And the penalty for transacting with someone under sanctions, particularly American sanctions, is very high. We're talking fines, prison, and even finding yourself on the receiving
0: end of more sanctions. And so Western countries um, had to scramble and try to clarify how they wanted these sanctions to work Um, in this new situation in Afghanistan. And I think, you know, um, in the kind of um, stunned aftermath of the Taliban takeover in 2021, there were all kinds of emergency meetings. And and I think there was real fear uh, at that time um, that Afghanistan could tip into an outright famine or into an outright state collapse. For Western countries and the UN, already dealing
1: with a major crisis of refugees fleeing Afghanistan, this was a big problem.
0: To their credit, um, some people in the Biden administration in the United States, some people in, you know, amongst their allies in Europe and elsewhere, they uh, swallowed hard um, and uh, sort of took a, a politically brave choice, which was to try to ease the effects of some of these sanctions. And so in the United States, we got something called General License 20. General License 20 refers
1: to a notice issued by the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control on February 25, 2022. The actual text of GL-20 is a little complicated, as these things usually are. But essentially, it authorizes all transactions involving Afghanistan except those that personally profit a sanctioned member of the Taliban or involve a company at least 50% owned by a sanctioned member of the Taliban. In other words, Afghanistan was officially open for business, just as long as you weren't doing private business with a Taliban member or paying them a bribe.
0: The United States brought in the most sweeping exemptions to U.S. sanctions ever in world history. Um, And they essentially said, okay, here's how we want this to work. We want um, aid for the people of Afghanistan to continue to flow. So, you know, if you're the World Food Program and you're handing out bags of food, we don't want that to be an illegal activity uh, in Afghanistan. Not only that, but we want you to continue to be able to um, help Afghan ministries. So, for example, you know, if you want to give money uh, for schools, you know, if you want little girls to go to school and you want to pay for their textbooks, but you have to do that through the education ministry, which is a part of the government. So it's a part of the Taliban controlled state. We want that to be okay as well. And then, you know, thirdly, I guess, you know, in terms of the broad categories, you know, the U.S. government also said, we don't want to restrict private business. This should have changed everything. But it didn't. The problem is that it just hasn't worked. The chilling effects of sanctions are still really holding back the economy of Afghanistan.
1: The chilling effect is the idea that even when doing business in a country is perfectly legal, The fact that it is even associated with sanctions puts people off. To see how this works, experts point to two phenomena, overcompliance and de-risking.
0: Overcompliance is when an actor just doesn't want the hassle of, uh, or or doesn't want the risk of of dealing with anything that's even remotely close to, um, you know, a sanctioned uh, entity. So Just to go back to my example, if I'm a part supplier um, for, you know, telecommunications technology sitting in Europe, you know, my biggest customers are in America and maybe China, who knows? Um, You know, someone sends me an email from Afghanistan. Afghanistan has been in the news recently uh, as being a place that's been taken over by the Taliban. I have some vague idea in my head that the Taliban are bad people. I'm just not even going to answer the email because, you know, um, it's just, I don't want to be anywhere near having an issue with compliance with, uh, with U.S. law or with European, uh, sanctions or anything like that, you know? So you, you steer clear and that's called, uh, over compliance. And de-risking is, is very similar. So for example, if I am Citibank and I am, uh, not just trying to comply with, uh, the letter of, U.S. Uh, sanctions. Of, of course, I'm trying to do that. I'm also trying to make sure that I'm running my very, very large uh, financial operations in a way that takes into account all kinds of political risk and reputational risk. And I've developed very, very you know, complex ways of, of making those judgments, making those calculations so that, um, you know, for example, I was sitting with a, a bank CEO in Kabul uh, last fall. And he was really um, despairing because he said, look, Graham, you know, we got these wonderful exemptions from sanctions from the U.S. government, general license 20. But, you know, um, the main way that food comes into my country is wheat flour imports from Central Asia. That's the main thing that comes in that feeds the people. And uh, those transactions, he said, uh, are being handled uh, primarily by uh, currency smugglers right now. And I said, well, isn't that expensive? And he said, yes, it's expensive. He said, you know, I would rather those transactions be handled by my bank. He said, but the problem is that uh, you can't send a wire transfer very easily to, to Kazakhstan where the suppliers are. And so he actually printed out a physical copy of General License 20. He got on a plane and went to meet with Central Asian bankers. And, you know, for a little while it worked. Actually, you know, he he, he presented them with the American rules. Uh, They looked them over and they said, "Okay, yeah, actually, let's let's allow these wire transfers to go through. But then the risk analysts at Citibank noticed this was happening and they sent a message through the SWIFT network to the Central Asian Bank saying, um, you know, we've noticed on our systems that you are uh, transacting with Afghanistan. Of course, that's your right. But if you transact with Afghanistan, you can't transact with New York. And so, of course, the, the Central Asian bankers, you know, chose to keep their access to the American market. Um, they didn't want to become sort of a victim of this, uh, of this de-risking. It isn't worth the hassle. Um, there's just, there isn't, there isn't enough margin there. You know, that hurts the price of bread uh, and and makes it harder for Afghans to get food.
1: Has the U.S. government gone to Citibank or any of the other big banks and told them to allow these transactions to happen?
0: Yes. Um, in fact... At one point last year, um, the United States sent instructions to embassies uh, all around the region um, asking diplomats to go out and have conversations with bankers and try to de-conflict this. But ultimately, these are uh, commercial uh, decisions. And the reality is that, you know, bankers have to treat the United States, you know, in a realistic way. Maybe the Biden administration wants banking to happen with Afghanistan and wants Afghans to eat uh maybe a trump administration would come in and reverse those rules you know you you have to play political risk you know safely if you're a, if you're a bank you can't just um you know have someone from the state department knock on your door and say oh well then i guess everything is fine because it's not fine i mean you you don't know how the operating environment is going to change
1: one man who definitely got the memo about general license 20 and doesn't seem too concerned with de-risking is american businessman
2: jeff rigsby who lives in Kabul? Um, I was here for about five years during the war, uh, doing various things. At first, uh, military contracting, uh, then later, some jobs with uh, uh, projects funded by USAID, uh, the Asian Development Bank. Lived in the Northwest in Badgeese province for about a year, uh, working on the National Ring Road. I came back here uh, in uh, the summer of 2022, uh, a little bit uh, before the one year anniversary of the Taliban takeover. Uh, at first, just to travel and see some provinces which had been off limits during the war, but also to see if there might be something that I could, uh, I could do here for the longer term. Uh, so at the moment, I've, I've been working on a few different things, um, some potential projects either in electric power or in mining, uh, although neither of those uh, is, uh, is really taking shape yet.
1: Jeff, how obvious is this chilling effect that Graham is
2: talking about in Afghanistan? Um, I would say it's, it's a little bit difficult to, to see it on the surface. Um, one thing that you want to keep in mind is that Afghanistan is a country where, where uh, a lot of business owners uh, have traditionally relied
1: on hawala. Hawala, which comes from the Arabic word for transfer, is a centuries-old system for moving money without, well, actually moving any money. In the hawala system, if I want to send you $100, I'll go to my local hawala agent, called a hawala dar, and give him the money plus a fee. I'll also tell both you and the Hawaladar a password that's needed for you to collect it. My Hawaladar will call a Hawaladar that he knows in your city and ask him to give you $100 on the condition that you give the correct password. Your Hawaladar will give you the $100 from his own account and make a note saying that my guy owes him the money. Besides that note, there is usually no other paper trail for the transaction and no ID or other documents required. This makes it a very popular method of transfer in poorer countries. And the debt between the Hawaladars is based on trust. My guy is expected to pay your guy the $100 at some later date. And if he doesn't, word will spread and no other Hawaladars will want to work with him.
2: Now, Hawala has a lot of drawbacks. People are uh, sometimes uh, critical of it for being relatively expensive. Um, In Afghanistan, the situation is actually a little bit different because Hawala, although it does have uh, overhead costs associated with it, it can be significantly cheaper than using the formal banking system. But Hawala, while
1: useful, is not available in most countries. For transfers to places like China or the West,
2: you still need to use banks. If you are, let's say, an Afghan business owner who wants to import a product, uh, let's say some sort of consumer goods from China, uh, and you have a bank account uh, at an Afghan bank, uh, let's say Azizi Bank, one of the private banks, uh, and you need to get dollars to pay your Chinese supplier for the products you're bringing in, Normally, Azizi Bank uh, will not have direct access to to any foreign banks to make that transaction. Uh, They would have relied up until the Taliban takeover, they would have relied on the central bank, on the Afghanistan Bank, to provide them with the dollars that they needed. Most of the private banks relied on the central bank to handle those types of currency transactions.
1: But there's just one problem with that, and something we didn't mention earlier. Since it fell into Taliban hands in August 2021, Afghanistan's central bank has been, well, broke. That's because almost all of its money, totaling around $9 billion, was stored in banks in other countries, $7 billion of it in the New York Federal Reserve Bank in the US, and the other $2 billion in various places in Europe and the Middle East. And when the republic fell, all of those funds were frozen. The Taliban has been trying to get them back for the past two years, But given that its government hasn't been recognized by anyone as the legitimate rulers of Afghanistan, they've been having some trouble.
2: So before the Taliban takeover, as I said, most banks other than AIB didn't have the capacity, uh, didn't have the overseas connections to make currency transactions on their own. They would rely on the central bank, which had accounts at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and accounts in some other foreign countries as well. Uh, They relied on the central bank to make those exchanges. So now that that money has become inaccessible, the formal banking system is even less effective than it was in the past. And what the US government has said is that it wants to free up some of those uh, frozen funds to to help revive the Afghan economy. Uh, They haven't always been very clear about how the funds would be used or, or what mechanism would be used. Um, But what seems to have been done is that uh, in September of last year, September 2022, the U.S. government set up a a nonprofit organization in Switzerland called the Fund for the Afghan People, uh, in which they transferred uh, roughly half of the $7 billion that had been frozen in New York City.
1: The other half, we should say, is still in New York because it's the subject of a lawsuit related to 9-11. But that's a whole other story. But the half that went to Switzerland is now in the hands of a foundation which, as Jeff said, is called the Fund for the Afghan People. It was supposedly set up to figure out ways to use the money to do things the Afghan Central Bank would ordinarily do, like facilitate cross-border transactions like payments for electricity imported from Uzbekistan. But nearly a year later, it hasn't really done anything at all. To Afghanistan's private sector, and would-be foreign
2: investors like Jeff, this is pretty concerning. I have been trying to understand more about what the foundation is doing and how it's been set up. Um, one of the difficulties with that is that Switzerland is a country that's famous for having very strong financial secrecy laws. Um, so if they don't want to, the fund doesn't have to disclose anything about how they are operating or what they're doing. It's uh, it's a little bit disappointing because there doesn't seem to have been any progress at uh, uh, reaching agreement on how the funds ought to be used, or how they could be mobilized to to make these uh, cross-border payments uh, a little bit less inefficient.
1: So is it all America's fault that the Afghan economy is in a state of near paralysis? Well, no. At the end of the day, the sanctions and asset freezes that have ground things to a halt and taken millions of Afghans further into poverty aren't happening for fun. They're seen as the last pieces of leverage for the international community which is trying to figure out how to exert effective pressure on a Taliban administration that has shown little sign of changing its behavior since retaking power. While today's Taliban claims it no longer shelters al-Qaeda or any other terrorist group, it has brought back most of the old restrictions on women and largely excluded minority groups from power. But the question is whether sanctions are an effective tool to force a change in these policies. After all, while the chilling effect has hurt Afghans, the same Afghans who the Taliban's policies are hurting too, by the way, the sanctions themselves, on paper, don't seem to do much to the Taliban members they target. At least, that's the argument Graham has been making
0: for the past couple of years. My organization, the International Crisis Group, was one of the earliest out of the gate, actually saying, uh, we need to really think, rethink the, the sanctions regime. We need to, to question why it is that we have sanctions. I mean, part of why um, these sanctions were developed and implemented over the last two decades was to try to um, deter the Taliban to you know, help quell the insurgency, to cut off their supplies of money and you know, ammunition and so forth to prevent them from taking over the country. And that failed. They did take over the country. Um, and so why do we have them now? You know, one of the ideas about uh, why you have these sanctions regimes is that they should be uh, coercive rather than punitive instruments. And what I mean by that is that you don't just sanction people because they're bad people. Can the Taliban be coerced? Do they
2: really see the link between their actions and what's happening to their economy? I sometimes see a few signs that uh, there may be people thinking of addressing it. When I, when I look at what, uh, Mullah Bradar and the economic council have been, uh, advising, um, I, I think there's some awareness of the problem, but there doesn't seem to be any, any sort of policy change in the works that would, uh, uh, that would potentially make the country more attractive. And I'm not even talking about changing policies on women's rights or, or other issues that are of concern to the international diplomatic community. I'm just talking about policies that might actually make foreign private investors interested in coming here. Um, that, uh, that still doesn't seem to be on the cards.
0: The Taliban, who I do talk to, um, you know, over the last few years, have been saying they want to make the country open for business. But at the same time, they don't want to compromise who they are. Um, and so if being open for business will mean being less Taliban, you know, they, they will probably choose to remain true to the intention of their, of their political movement. And I think, you know, um, that's a hard circle to square. Uh, I think there are opportunities, though, um, for, for dialogue on this. Um, you know, it's not in the interests of the United States or any other Western country to see a full economic collapse uh, in Afghanistan. And so I do think that that uh, conversation about what, you know, how to stabilize the economy um, needs to happen separately from uh, the political track of dialogue, you know, because there is a sort of um, track one grand bargain uh, level of conversation with the Taliban that needs to occur about how they might eventually, you know, escape sanctions and and regain their seat uh, at the United Nations General Assembly and, you know, achieve uh, diplomatic normalization with, um, you know, accredited ambassadors and so forth. But that political conversation is going to be slow, uh, perhaps very slow. And the economic stabilization uh, part has to be fast. Afghans need to eat. Uh, regional partners uh, need to transact business. You know, energy-rich Central Asia needs to export electricity and gas to uh, South Asia. Uh, trucks need to cross borders. There needs to be customs integration. Uh, water uh, has to be managed across border. The upper and lower riparian rights have to be negotiated. So there is very important um, economic dialogue that needs to go on, even while the politics remain stuck. You know, if you're running an airline, if you're running a telecommunications firm, you know, try doing that in a country that is affected by sanctions. It's, it's a very hard thing.
1: That's all for this week's Beyond the Headlines. Thanks very much to our guests, Graham Smith and Jeff Rigsby. Our show was produced this week by Arthur Edison, Doha Farid, and Anas Rafa'i. And I was your host, Sleiman Hakimi. To get all of our episodes as soon as they air, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave us a review.